here. Hello. Hello. It's hard for me to even be jovial. Yeah, I know. It's not a good day to be no. jovial. But no. Uh, well, welcome. It is Wednesday night, generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter, and I'm not in a good mood because we're wearing the same shirt. He hates it when we accidentally match, but I will admit I'm this is on this is your fault. It is kind of. But I I just I'm I'm somewhat limited. I have an adult child home now. The laundry room is not as free and open as it always once was. So you simply can't access it to the to the degree at which I would like to access. Well, it's just one more adult person who takes his laundry very meticulously. Yes. Well, that, well, again, Reese uh, like hangs things to dry in there. Like he take when he's in the laundry room, he's in the laundry room. Well, when that stupid show, the Jersey shore was on, it was called GTL Jim Tan uh-huh. laundry. And like the whole laundry thing apparently was like a really big deal. The whole process of. Well, like, I'm just saying I'm, uh, it's not for lack of wanting to, you know, I know, Peter, in a way, has to, we always have to be wearing the opposite shirt. It's just sort of his thing. It's good branding. It's, it, it, yeah, whatever. We're wearing the shirts that we actually have available, though. That's the other thing. So not the best day. We obviously are very, um, you know, anytime any of these uh, horrific tragedies happen, it's obviously... Unbelievably sad. And of course, this is particularly terrible because this is the second uh, incarnation of Sandy Hook. Um, Innocent grade school kids' lives were taken. Um, That changed my life. Yeah. That changed my life. That was huge because my son, my second son, was the exact same age as those kids. And in fact, one of the kids, oh my God, his first name was Dylan. Um, And Graham had the exact same birthday. And I just... I can't even begin. That was when, and I flew to DC and I participated. It was before Moms Demand Action was Moms Demand Action. And I participated in that, in that March when it actually was something that was good. Right. And, and then nothing happened. And that for me was this epiphany that we're, we're done. That's, that's it. To me, it marked the end of civilization as we know it. We just, watch the class of first graders get massacred and we're not doing anything. And by not doing anything, I am not some strong gun control advocate. He will tell you. I generally think that legislating this is not going to solve the problem. I, um, I, 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 For me, I'm just so incredibly sad that we live in a world where this is something that is um, possible, that somebody would get to this point. And yes, there is a m- mental illness component because somebody who does this, obviously has issues. Um, but that's not what the problem is. It's just not, it's a variety of things, not the least of which is we live in a very unhappy, violent society and our connections are less and less intimate on social media. And I think people are very isolated. I think, especially this is a white man problem. It just seems to be a white man problem. I just wasn't a white man who did this. No, but it's a, it's a male problem. I hate it's to say it's a male it. problem. There's, That's, there's, it's definitely a male problem. Like, That's for sure. and it's there's something. Just, I'm just very sad, and and it's going to be politicized. But I will say, from a political standpoint, anybody who takes corporate dollars from any organization, the NRA or otherwise, is why we're having this problem. 
It doesn't matter whether or not they take NRA money. I'm so tired of these sanctimonious Democrats talking about that it's the Republicans and it's the gun lobby. No, it's all of you corporate whores that have sold our government to the highest bidder. And then you don't get to say, well, I don't take it from that particular bad guy. No, you're all participating in the same disgusting system. So that's the political side of it. Gun manufacturing is a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry annually in the United States. Um, the gun manufacturing industry is going to make several billion dollars as a result of the $40 billion that was Agreed. just given to Ukraine. Uh, that's not going to get talked about, uh, but it should because that is a problem. And you can defend it from now until the end of time about how Ukraine is fighting this proxy war and we're technically now in that proxy war. You are contributing to this mass machine of weaponry that gets moved around all over the globe for the purposes of basically monopolizing natural resources. Well, and just in and, and of itself, it's extremely profitable. I, I just feel like I'm in Groundhog Day. I feel like it's like rinse and repeat. It's the same thing as weapons of mass destruction or whatever else that's been going on since the Cold War. And now we've actually got, you know how I always say like in Hollywood, they can't come up with anything new. They just sort of like keep doing new versions of old things because it's like they've run out of ideas. I feel like that in with our military situation. Like now we couldn't come up with anything new. So we're back to the Cold War again. We got to go back against Russia, even though they're no longer even communist. We're still going in that direction. And people are still falling for this like every single time. Hook, line and sinker every time. I, I really do. I feel like I'm in Groundhog Day. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. And on top of everything else, on top of the fact that this is um, and again, we were tepid. We we're tepidly talking about this because we don't know everything yet. We do not know all the details about this kid and, and how uh it came to be that he decided to do what he was going to do. Uh, but clearly, based on the fact that he blew away his grandmother first before he went off and did this, says that there was, uh, you know, and again, everyone wants to say, well, he was, but they're already saying he was bullied and this and that. Okay, then why, what, what possesses somebody to go and take an assault weapon and go into a classroom and start killing kids. But it's important to note that he legally obtained said weapon. Absolutely. And had legislation been in place that required background checks, he probably could still be able to have that weapon if you don't have a history. He yeah. doesn't, I mean, I don't know, but the point is those laws don't solve these problems. And, and the other thing that isn't going to get talked about enough, which I think is important, is the fact that, yes, there are tons of guns. Oh. There's 300 million guns in the United States. There's a gun for every person, basically. We're at that ratio. And so when you have that many weapons, let's just say for the sake of argument that there were stricter gun laws and they were not able to legally obtain these firearms. If there's a black market, that means that the price for these guns go up a lot, like a lot, double, triple. I'm not saying that there wouldn't be a way to get them, but this particular weapon, which there's... There's still debate about whether it was an AR-15 or not. I don't. I, don't, I frankly, I don't even want to. You realize that what the, uh, why this is, and I'm going to refer everybody to Bo the Fifth Column. Why they're always AR-15s? Because that's like basically in this country saying, "Oh, someone has a Toyota." Yeah, yeah it's that because that's the common thing. If you take that away, it'll be what it'll be something else, and and that's the thing. And by the way. Also, these things can now be made with 3D printers, yeah. magazines, all those clips, all this. The ship has sailed and that, on reining in the guns. And that was a point that Tim Pool did make today that he was absolutely correct about, which is 
even if you try to take them away, 3D printers, which we've been to Tim Pool's compound hit, does exist. These things can be made at home if you want to. So thinking that you're just going to take them away, is it's not that simple. The system is broken and people are broken and people are going to kill people because that's what they do. And let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, if they get an opportunity to get to one of these big wigs, they're going to take them out. Guaranteed. This is why they have to walk around with armored security all the time. They refuse to change. McConnell has to do it. Pelosi has to do it. They all have to live basically within a bubble. They have no way of, they can't go. You really think, I mean, listen, Debbie Wasserman Schultz only goes out in public down here to very specific places. And she's not even somebody who you would consider as of this moment, really on the radar, if you will. And so now what we're dealing with here is a situation, and we'll talk about this with Jeff Waldorf when he comes on. I really think that one of the most direct, there, there, was, um, there was one, I guess what you would call, um, it's not a survey, but it's basically like a deep dive into exactly why this has happened and what types of people react to this. I remember Columbine like it was yesterday. That was really the first one. I mean, you can talk about different things that have happened, like, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing, the siege at Waco, things like that. But in terms of going into schools, in terms of this readily available ability to just get a weapon and start firing away at people, the Internet has a direct correlation with this. There is something to be said for the way that our society in so many ways has drifted, where we don't interact with people. A good friend of ours, Joe Caristo, who owns the, the pizza parlors, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he said, listen, in the 70s and 80s, when we were out, everybody knew each other in yeah. the neighborhood. Everybody was social. They were playing sports. They were getting skid marks. They got hurt. Not this thing where you're wrapped up in bubble paper. People didn't have time to worry about blowing away schools. But when you are literally attached <clears throat> to this 10 to 12 hours out of the goddamn day, and remember, social media is designed in a way to keep oh. you addicted. If to you keep haven't you seen on it, what was it? The social experiment. The social experiment. I think that was the name of the movie. That was so good. That like docudrama about this the the whole thing about how we're being fed, what we're being fed, and how they're doing it. It's really creepy. But um, I think there's an immense amount of detachment from, and this was why. Okay, so honestly, my thought on on talking about this was just to refer people to Russell Brand's video. Russell Brand's video, everything he says, I would say ditto, ditto, ditto. Um, I kind of feel like I don't need to reinvent the wheel. It's not a political and a policy problem. This is a humanity problem. It is so much bigger than that. And all they're doing is trying to blame whoever they're trying to blame. When it really just comes down to who we are as a society, and we're a very violent society. Oh, we are. And we were based that way. And it's, it's, it's how we were born. But that, between that and just complete capitalism, unfettered greed and all of that, it's like we are becoming, like we're a farce of ourselves at this point. So we're imploding is how I see it. And I have been saying for a long time um, that I'm surprised it doesn't happen more because the, the amount of available guns and the amount of miserable, desperate people um, is huge. Like it's just a recipe for disaster. 
And it just, ever since Sandy Hook, Sandy Hook was life-changing for me. That was when I realized this is, this is it. And we are imploding as a civilization. And I'm just tired of people pointing fingers and blaming. It's priorities, people. That's all it is. It's priorities. It's priorities. It's what we value and what we don't value. And once I saw that, I'm like, that's it. There is no coming back. Like, nothing is going to happen from this. You know, it, it, there's no amount of people getting killed that will make something happen. And the amount of people that grandstand on this issue, this is another one they love locally, all those women. I forwarded you the invite to the whole big grandstanding, moms demand action, big thing. Looks like, no, and, and what but, it actually says in the email as well, it looks like we've got another uh, vigil to go to. Yes. It's like, and, and, and the thing is, is it's like the Democratic Party in particular, I think, loves this crap. I do. Just like they loved Roe v. Wade being threatened. It's like this is such an opportunity for them to grandstand on stuff that is such just common sense. And that probably more than anything else is the truth. And I'll tell you why, because what ended up happening today, as we noticed on social media, which was just clear as day, you know, the one person right now, legislatively speaking, who could actually do something is Senator Schumer. He is the Senate Majority Leader, H.R. 8, which is the universal background check bill that passed the House. He could bring it to the floor, even if he says we don't have the votes right now. OK, fine. If you don't have the votes, you can force the vote and get people on the floor defending why we don't need universal background checks. Make that happen. So you have to defend the fact, Marco Rubio, that you've taken as, you know, local political friend in South Florida, Tomas Kennedy pointed out online, has taken three point three million in NRA money. That's a lot of money. And you're not going to be able to defend it. So if that's the case, we do have an opportunity to do something. But is anything going to be done? All right. I have to say, Tyler, Tyler says Russell Brand is not someone I would ever go to for any kind of serious analysis. You are so, so woefully mistaken, my friend. I must tell you, I could my not God, disagree. You definitely with... have to go and check out I mean, Brand's channel. Uh, let me tell you, I mean, he is not like what you, if you're thinking of him from like the 90s or whatever, when he was sort of, you know, Trust, if you have using and whatever. Tyler, if you haven't checked out his channel, highly he's, recommend He's beyond bright. Somebody I, else's channel who you're going to yes. be checking out is going to be somebody who, we have uh, obviously paid attention to for a number of years. We're excited to talk with him. I am. His graphic is Heisenberg. Oh, they, well, there you go. That's his, it. His, nice. his emoji to me, he looks like Heisenberg. He has been with the TYT network, I believe, since 2014, 2015. And he is a true progressive in the true sense and somebody who really, he, you know, when you talk about just getting to the heart of what needs to be discussed, I think he does a fantastic job. Jeff Waldorf of the TYT network. Welcome to Generational Change. Hi, thank you for the very warm introduction. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, glad to be here. It's nice to meet you. Has anyone ever told you before that your icon does sort of look like Heisenberg? No, no, that's the first I've actually heard of it. Uh, but You know yeah, what I'm referring uh, I did to, see though, that. right? Okay. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I am the danger. What are you talking about? Okay, no, just making go. sure. Um, so I, I, you were listening when, you know, obviously what's mm -hmm. going on right now. It's like, we're so sick of talking about this. But yet we can't stop talking about this because it doesn't seem to to stop. But you right. strike me as very reasonable as well. And it's like they're they're not none of them really want to do anything. None of them want to do anything. Right. I mean, I, I mean, certainly when you when you look at Republicans, of course, they don't want to do anything. And when you look at Democrats, sadly, you were making the point uh, with Roe v. Wade. 
corporate Democrats are going to continue to try to fundraise off this uh, because they know, you know, they're not going to be able to do anything. Um, did you see earlier today with Joe Manchin uh, being asked about this? And he says, well, you know, I'll, I'll do anything I can to push forward gun legislation, except for get rid of the filibuster, which is the only thing that would actually push forward gun control right. legislation. So basically a big, fat, giant nothing. Yeah. That's what you get from corporate Democrats. And of course, the fact that Senator Schumer really does have the opportunity to at least do something, whether it results in H.R. 8 actually getting passed of course, it won't. probably won't, but you could actually put people on the hot seat. And that is not something that he was even entertaining. He's just saying, vote for more Dems in November. That'll solve the problem. I think most yeah. people are starting to catch on to this grift. What do you think? Well, I mean, certainly this is something that we've seen from Democrats for quite some time. Just uh, if only you would vote just a little bit harder. That, that's all you need to do. Just, just vote harder. And uh, maybe, maybe down the line, someday we might do something. Maybe. Oh, no. I, look, I, I think, again, uh, corporate Democrats are incredibly weak and feckless. Look, while while Chuck Schumer is saying, well, you know, you know we'll, we'll, if you vote for Democrats, we'll do things. Over on the House side, you have Nancy Pelosi, Jim Clyburn, uh, and Steny Hoyer, Democratic leadership out there that were pushing Henry Cuellar was an a I believe thing from the NRA and is also anti-choice. They poured millions of dollars into that race to defeat progressive Jessica Cisneros. And she is behind by what somewhere around 170 votes, 177 razor thin margin. That's what that money did. If you give money to the Democrats, if you give money to the DNC, it went right into their pockets, uh, right into, you know, uh, to, to help Henry Cuellar, who, by the way, is being investigated by the FBI. I mean, all of this really does show you the, the, the emptiness, the hollowness of Democratic leadership by the corporate Democrats. It, it really is disgusting. So, no, they're not going to do anything about this. Chuck Schumer knows they're not going to do anything about this. And even putting it out to a vote. That might even help Republicans because, again, Republicans here, let me explain why, they revel in cruelty. That is their whole brand. The base says let's own the libs, the people that are actually voting, and that is their only policy position, own the libs. And so if they see that uh, that bill as a failure and are able to block it just like they block everything else that would help regular people – they're going to say, nailed it. Yeah. No, they're not going to do anything. And this is my my thoughts on this are always like these Congress people that don't take NRA money, say. Like yeah. our congresswoman doesn't take money from the Wasserman, NRA. Wasserman, <clears throat> Wasserman Schultz has a propensity to really get loud <clears throat> about the fact that she doesn't, doesn't take, take NRA, NRA money. money. But, but you is, forget all the other money that she Right. Takes. But see, my theory is always this, right? If you're taking corporate money. You are participating, condoning, and contributing to the system that has allowed for the NRA to buy whoever it is they have on their payroll. So you're you're not you're part of that problem. You don't get a pass because you don't happen to take NRA money. I don't care. All that legislation you're trying to do is completely feckless. At this point, capitalism is so 
far gone that your little gun laws are, we're way past that at this point with the availability of weapons. Like it's just, we're so far past that. And for them to act like them just not taking NRA money somehow gives them any like, I don't know, credibility. It's just, it's, it's mind boggling to me. They're all such corporate whores. Like, I don't care who you take your money from. Yeah. And, and look, you know, going to the uh, bigger issue, the societal issue, we have a, we have a gun culture and you're right. We have more guns than human beings in this country. And therefore, of course, we have more mass shootings than anyone else, despite of course, having the same amount of video games, the same amount of internet access, the same amount of phones, the same amount of pretty much everything as any other country. The only difference is we have more guns than everyone because we have a gun culture. And so we have a, an, ex, uh, an exceedingly amount uh, of weapons going into a, a, a very small number of hands. It's almost like they're building arsenals. You know what I'm saying? So you have so many guns going to so many people or to so few people. It's, it's insane. What exactly, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different ways that, you know, we can dissect exactly how these things happen. And we were briefly talking about it before. The only direct correlation that I can see, uh, because there was an extensive study that was done, I don't remember the organization, but it, it, it kind of correlated from Columbine all the way till today, uh, what the similarities are. And there's two there's there's two rules of thumb that come to mind. The first one is is that all of the men, because it's while men. it is, you know, it's obviously men. it's been predominantly white men, but it's 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 men. It, it, it's it's white men. It's Hispanic men. It's black men. And the thing that is universally true about these shooters is that they have terrible relationships with women. That is indisputable. And there, there's a rage there that exists at the world. There could be a number of reasons for that. And then the other correlation is the fact that all these things have happened since the dawning of the Internet. And I think the fact that we have drifted so much as a society in terms of our isolationism is so much more common. People can literally spend, as we were saying before, 10 to 12 hours every day on this thing. And especially during the adolescent years, the teenage years where the brain is developing to actually be ingrained in that. I mean, it has to have cognitive effects on your development. And the fact that, you know, Zuckerberg has admitted as much that the algorithm is designed like a slot machine to keep you going, to keep you on there, to keep you rage liking and rage uh, commenting and all those things. Out of 300 plus million people, there are going to be outliers that are not only going to get violent, but they're going to get violent in such a way that is going to be an utter shock to society that doesn't make any sense. But we're like Jen said, we're not addressing the core reasons as to why we're here. We're trying to put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound and it's not going to work anymore. Right. And, and, and look, you know, um, definitely I do agree that there is uh, contributing factors of people that are lonely, I guess, that are isolated from from others, uh, maybe even pathologically, uh, that there are issues with, you know, mental illness. There's issues with obviously, like we saw in Buffalo, racism and people getting radicalized online with far right ideology. Um, there, there's all of these different contributing factors. And it seems like almost a kind of a crapshoot to go and, and, and go and diagnose all the 
all the singular issues, but what connects everything is the easy access to weapons. Because again, all these uh, other countries have similar issues, yeah. but they do not have they do not have the problem of mass shootings <clears throat> the way that we do here in the United States. So I think that's the thread that connects all of that. But you're right that all of that stuff also uh, contributes to this. But we here in the United States has have a very very unique problem with the amount of mass shootings that we have, and of course it's correlated to the amount of guns uh, that we have in this country. Right. So in my mind, like, here's what I'm thinking. Like when you live in a country where there are so many guns out there, one would think maybe we should take care of our citizens a little bit better so they're not miserable, desperate, depressed and like just live miserable lives. Um, Like if you when you look at our happiness index kind of thing, like when you go and talk to people, that live, let's say, in Denmark, um, they don't have what we have here either in terms of just miserable people that are just suffering right. and whose lives just really suck because they don't have a safety net for people. And I think that when you have people that are so desperate or working three jobs or whatever, everybody is just struggling to live here. And I think that that plus access to firearms is a very horrible combination. And my thought mm-hmm. is at this point, the ship has sailed on access to firearms. But maybe what we can control is how miserable and enraged everybody is, because it's like that is something that we do have a lot more control over at this point. And I just like that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about making it like a political blame game. And I just don't think people look at the, the it's, it's a big picture problem. That's my point. Yeah. And, and, and let me just add, I think that this is. Um, like you said, a big picture problem where there are multiple points that need to be attacked. Yeah. Obviously, the access to weapons is is one of the major issues. The other, of course, is is corruption in our government, thanks to the NRA, thanks to lobbyists, thanks to corrupt you know uh, politicians on both sides that take lots and lots of money from these industries. But the other problem, of course, is what you were mentioning too: capitalism. Capitalism crushing regular everyday people, making people desperate. Um, part of what you were saying uh, is the disconnection from regular people, right? Well, when you are in a very individualistic society and you are working multiple jobs and you, you see everybody else as, a, as sort of a rival for resources, uh, you've been told that the individual matters more than everyone else, your individual liberty, your individualism uh, and that any sort of collectivism is inherently bad, working together with your community, working together with your neighbors, working together uh, as a society, you know, to solve problems together. Well, that does isolate people. Uh, and of course, there's the consistent political battles with pitting different groups against each other. Uh, earlier today, I saw Paul Gozar and Candace Owens immediately trying to pin this particular shooting on transgender people. Can you imagine transgender yes. people? Oh, my God. And just nothing, absolutely nothing to do with it. In fact, they had uh, taken photos oh my God. Uh, from a, a completely uh, different, you know, uh, randomized Redditor uh, who happened to be transgender and posted this saying, oh, this is a shooter. This is a shooter. And then Candace Owens is saying, oh, it's mental health and this or mental illness. And there's people that are, are, are cross-dressing and that's the mental illness part. And we're not addressing it. Blah, blah, blah. And she's sitting there and, and she's just basically lying and promoting an incredibly harmful anti-trans ideology. And so that that's the kind of thing we have paid grifters as well. 
oh, yeah. that are that are dividing people. And and so we see all of this stuff played out where we are being pit against each other. Groups are being pit against each other. You know, the working class is being pit against each other. And, you know, what capitalists like to benefit from that by being able to distract us and pick our pockets. And, you know, the whole problem just continues to metastasize. And so we cannot solve this issue until we go and solve all those different factors that are feeding into this issue. And that's understand that that is an incredibly tall order for a system that is dysfunctional and broken as ours. Yeah, it is. It's sad. And that's why for me, it's never surprising anymore. Um, Sandy Hook was a huge turning point for me. just as a human being, like that was huge for me. I, I like, I realized that that's pretty much the end of civilization right there. That we're, that, that, that happened and nothing happened. So we're, we're okay. And that freaked me out. So since then, nothing shocks me. And you brought up a really great point about the fact that there is, um, and as you know, again, uh, you've been doing this for a long time and you have seen many iterations of what content creators will do uh, for attention. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. We see it on the right. Uh, the right is much more predictable because they have uh, kind of a, a very specific branding code that they follow. Uh, Candace right. Owens and I would say Charlie Kirk are probably the two most successful grifters at it, which is not. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we have problems on the left, too. You know, there's a lot of people sure. who uh, do their shows specifically for the purpose of clicks and not for the purpose of, uh, you know, growth within the movement. I would argue they're not really left. They're just grift. Well, yes. They're uh, not. If you're, if, if you're, then that you're about you, you're about your vanity. You're about whatever you are. You're mm-hmm. not about helping regular. Once you do certain things, it's just clear that that's what your motivation is to me. And we've had this mm-hmm. philosophy and we've had this philosophy for a while because, you know, when things are so bad and the divide gets so volatile and you know that people can, you know, overreact at any moment, you know, somebody like Tim Pool, if we don't agree with him on X, Y, and Z politically, the point of having a relationship with somebody like him is not about convincing him nope. that we have that we have the right ideas, that we are correct about this and you're wrong about that. It's the fact that he gets 50 to 60,000 live viewers every single time he is on, and that's five times a week. And when Jen was on his podcast, yeah, you're going to get a significant portion of that crowd that is very part of that rural libertarian right. I don't agree with anything. I think the government should stay the hell out of everything we do. It's kill or be killed, and that's the life we want to live. But- for that 15 to 20% of that group that doesn't think exactly like that and thinks what Jen is saying is, you know what? That actually does make sense. Those types of conversations need to happen. That's why we do it. I don't go on to debate people. I go on any, I'll go on anybody's show. My message is my message. So it's just a wider audience. It's the same thing with Michael Knowles. Michael Knowles Mm -hmm. grips. You'd have to be a fool not to see that that's part of his shtick that he has figured out a way, like Dave Rubin, to make a lot of money basically placating to a very specific crowd. Hey, buy my book. Hey, check out my show. Oh, and by the way, I'm cashing in $100,000, $200,000 in some cases a month because you guys can't, you know, they, I, don't hate the player, hate the game, as they say. But reach their audience. Reach the audience. That's the thing. 
Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I think it is important to go and reach people's audiences. Uh, that's why I know there are a lot of people that were making, you know, some some noise about when Bernie Sanders, for example, would go on Fox News. Uh, but the thing about that and, and the general rule that I tend to follow is if you, you can go on these right wing shows and, and appeal to their audience, as long as you don't change your message. You know what I'm saying? If you go on those shows and you change that message or you start, you know, pretty much agreeing with the central premises uh, of the host that's doing so in a way that doesn't align with your own stated values, you know what I'm saying? Or running cover or doing things like that, then that is a red flag. But if you're going on there to actually present your side of the issue, um, then I think that that is an excellent way to try to reach people in the audience. Matt Bender uh, had recently uh, debated Tim Pool as well. I don't know if you were familiar with yes. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was uh, excellent because I'd watched uh, Bender afterwards and he took some callers and he had a couple of conservative callers, Tim Pool viewers, uh, that were like, you know what? I like some of the stuff that you had to say. And I appreciated you going on there and getting your point of view out, where, uh, out there. And so I think... I think that can be really valuable uh, in in trying to get out the the left message because what we're facing here is lack of media access. We we do not have cable news. We do not have these gigantic platforms to get out our message. You know, uh, mainstream uh, corporate media is is a wasteland. It's an absolute joke. There's no leftist perspective on there. And so the only way, unfortunately, that we can get access to those larger audiences is to be able to have those conversations. Uh, and so as much as I disagree with Tim Pool, you know, I'll, I'll call him a, a, a ghoul sometimes and, you know, make fun of the beanie. I'm a bald guy. Just just be just be honest with yourself, Tim. You're bald. You know what? Just, I said that to him in person, actually, when I met him and I went there, I actually based. said, what's with the hat? I said it right to him. I said, I go, do you ever take it off? Can I can I see what's under the hat? He took it off. He took it off for a second and then put it back on. But I absolutely agree with you 100 percent. And that is something that I I think about people like what what they present about themselves. And that's something Mm -hmm. I noticed, too, for the same reasons. I agree 100 percent. Embrace the bald. The bald is beautiful. It's. Yeah, it's just about being what you are and who you mm-hmm. are. And it's it, it's being it's being comfortable. I'm actually that. that's confidence. I, I will tell you, and I am very, very grateful that I have a full head of hair and hopefully always will. But I got to <laughs> tell you, Jeff, you you bald guys, you have the ability to grow that beard. And I have some serious envy. I'm not going to lie. You guys really do a great job. My best friend from back home, the hair I have here is right here on the board. That's where it went. And it can be very, uh, it's very sophisticated. It's it's a very personal thing, but I just think that it's a confidence thing. I do. I think it's a confidence (laughs) thing. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Where I mean, where it's missing on the head, it it grew out in the face. So I guess, uh, I guess it all kind of works out, you know, in the end, (laughs) but uh, look, hey, some some people do better with bald. Some people do better with hair. Everybody's different. And yeah. uh, you know what? Here on the left, we embrace diversity. That's yeah. so, that is no, you know thing. what is beautiful is confidence. Whatever your mm. thing is, mm. is just wearing like it, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just how you it, when your comfort level with it. 
to me is what's right. appealing. And a great, <clears throat> and, and I think a great place to transition because when we talk about the people who are really in the movement for the right reasons and we don't have to name him or anybody else, listen, if I had the opportunity to go on Tucker Carlson's show, I'd go on there in a heartbeat. I wouldn't even think Same. twice about it. Absolutely. But if you're going to go on Tucker Carlson's show and the only thing you're going to do is bash the left, then you're proving that your motivation mm -hmm. is only for your career yep. and nothing more. Whereas, and there was a test case for this, this whole idea, give Tucker Carlson credit because he'll have people on and have a different opinion. No one did a better job on his show than Chris, Chris Smalls. Smalls. My God, oh, yeah. did he knock that out of the park. He knew exactly what Carlson mm -hmm. was going to do. And he juke and jived him away he and said, great. I ain't playing that game. I'm here to talk about why we need a labor movement. And by the time the conversation was over, Tucker was saying, look, I may not be a union guy, but I can definitely get behind the idea that we are way too divided and we need a bigger labor movement. That's all anybody should have been talking about after that. Tucker Carlson said we need a bigger labor movement. Hallelujah. That's what's that's the whole point of going on there. Yeah. You know, what's funny is that he'll probably never be invited on Tucker Carlson's show again. No. And so you, you get you, you get one shot. Because from what I've heard, you have to agree. You have to, uh, I guess, agree to only talk about the certain topic yes. that uh, Tucker Carlson wants you to talk about. And so you get one one shot and you take you if you're going to do it, you better take that shot to do a lefty perspective. You know what? Do do what you can to get kicked off Tucker's show and never get invited again. Yes. That's how you know you did a good job. Yeah, I agree. I think you need, we need to use those opportunities every time they're presented. But I, more often than not, have had people that would be considered more on the right <clears throat> mm -hmm. come up to me either in person or send me a message saying, I saw you on such and such, and I want to say I find mm -hmm. you very reasonable. And my mm -hmm. thing is, the only way that we're going to get anywhere in any sort of like labor progress, regular people movement is if we put the social issues aside in a lot of cases and build bigger coalitions. We need to deal with the environment problem. I have Republican friends that are trying to restore the Everglades. So like, yeah, I'll go work with you on that. We don't have to agree on everything, but the only way we're going to get anything done is to get everybody per issue on the same page. And for the most part, we agree on things. Yeah. So I, I just feel like if I can attract people to our show and expose them to whatever other new information from what they're getting or whatever, because, you know, we usually have authors or experts or whatever, mm -hmm. um, that's only helping the situation. You know what I mean? Like that's only going to help the situation. So mm -hmm. that's how I view it is just building as big of a web for all of these things as I can. And if Republicans think I'm reasonable on the environment or whatever, good, come on over. Let's talk about mm -hmm. that. You know, that's what I'm trying to do. And one of the things that I think gets forgotten, and I'm sure you would agree, Jeff, because again, I've, you've covered this from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. I, I knew that there was something about Bernie in the spring of 2015. I knew there was something there. I said, this is different. This is, this is not Obama. This is a real grassroots movement that could actually mm -hmm. turn into something significant. Wasn't sure how far he'd go. In hindsight, he went further than I, I probably could have hoped he would have. Uh, mm -hmm. Sustaining the movement has been very difficult. And as we just saw in court, and I really don't want to talk about Hillary, but the fact of the oh. matter is they had to admit in court, Robbie Mook, one of the biggest bootlickers of them all in politics, had to admit in court, yeah, we made up the Russia story. And the fact that it's not going to get any real play 
you look back now and you think about how many middle of the road independents or even what you would consider libertarian left independents who were absolutely behind Bernie. But when he got screwed by Wasserman Schultz and the party establishment and obviously with Clinton at the top, they just decided, ah, F it, I'll go and I'll support Trump. And I'm telling you, there's probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them that are still over there. That if they could have the opportunity to be back here right now, if they really believed that there was a movement that was focused on a living wage, uh, universal health care, the environment, ending the wars, you can see how rabid people are that are on what you would call the right right now. But it's it's so convoluted. You don't even know where people stand. The populist side. No one wants this war shit. Like nobody wants it. And all I'm thinking is that was a huge part of this particular movement. And because of what mm-hmm. Hillary and Debbie and all of them did, they literally pushed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people out of the party. They said, I don't want this shit. I ain't gonna, I'm not doing it. I'm not playing in the sandbox of these corporate neoliberals in the bourgeois cities. I'm not doing it. And I'm thinking that's a huge part of why we're kind of very stagnant right now. What do you think? Well, I mean, look, uh, there's obviously a lot there. Um, to talk about. But let me just say that I think the Democrats for 2016 picked one of the worst people. Uh, And of course, we can all agree that it it was basically, you know, uh, the old party politics, the old guard saying, no, no, you don't understand. It's Hillary Clinton's turn. And how dare somebody come in and, and actually challenge her with a with a more populist, you know, sort of progressive or really progressive platform, things that people actually want um as far as you know the dirty politics like so uh, i think i read somewhere that it was about 10 less uh, somewhere around 10 percent of uh bernie uh, primary voters that went for uh that actually voted for no i'm sorry that did not vote for hillary clinton uh in this election that's actually less than the um uh, uh clinton voters that decided not to vote for obama who had actually went and joined McCain. So there's a, there's sort of a history of this, right? So when you kind of single out some of those people, and, and I'm not saying that you're doing it, I assume the establishment uh, absolutely did that to do the whole, you know, Bernie bro narrative. Um, I think that's just, you know, absolute uh, uh, garbage and, and a way to really kind of gloss over the fact that it was Hillary Clinton, her campaign died to death of a thousand cuts, most of them, the majority of them, I believe, were self-inflicted. Not to try to relitigate, you know, 2016, but she ran away from any sort of populist platform, ran away from any sort of uh, things that would generally be, uh, you know, favored by the Democratic base itself. Because remember, you look at these policies, they're massively supported by the Democrats, massively supported by Democratic voters, but it's the media it's the big it's the media that's the biggest problem here in in because what they did is they constantly ran nonstop stories about how this is not feasible we just can't do this medicare for all never going to happen not possible they lied about it they said it would cost way more uh they said you know uh, they used the the the, the pro business line of like, oh, we can't raise your wages like that because that will cause problems down the road. Uh, the business is not going to be able to afford that. They did all of this stuff uh, to try to stop these reforms um, from getting through, from to stop Bernie Sanders, to stop 
you know, Democratic voters from from wanting to cast their vote for Bernie during the primaries. And of course, you talk about the vicious smears as well. You know, they were absolutely vicious. Hillary Clinton, uh, the Democrats, you had the Washington Post corporate media doing nonstop smear stories, 16 negative articles about Bernie Sanders in 16 hours. I think you remember that. Yes. Um, all to try to stop him uh, from doing stuff that is actually really, really popular among not just a Democrats, but a broad swath of, like you said, independent voters, left-leaning independent voters, and even some conservative voters as well. Um, and so that that's like the real tragedy of 2016 is we could have had a fighting chance at having a Sanders presidency uh, that would have actually gotten some things done. But instead, they put up the worst person and, by the way, you know, also – ran against the the uh, uh, tried to elevate the worst person Donald Trump to run against and their message was look at this guy he sucks we also suck but he sucks worse <laughs> not a winning message I think that what you said in the very beginning seriously and you just came back to the worst person that like seriously is the most perfect description of her I can think of like seriously the worst person I just horrible. And there was no universe wherein I was voting for her. None, none, never will be. And so, you know, and I know that they like to blame the people that didn't vote for Hillary as to that was, it was our fault. It's our fault that it's Jill Stein, it's Susan Sarandon. It's, you know, all of these things as to why. No, that's ridiculous. The blaming Susan Sarandon <laughs> and Jill Stein, again, you had uh, going back to that roughly 10%, and I don't have the exact number, somewhere 10 to 11%. Uh, people who didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, you have to remember, too, that they were not ever guaranteed to vote for Hillary Clinton. Right. Those votes are are not are not owed. Right. Those votes do tend to be earned by a politician. Uh, and so you had to have that excitement. You had to have that 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 whole promise that I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to do something better. And she didn't have that. And so what was the onus to turn out for her other than to keep Donald Trump? And I'll be honest with you guys. I held my nose and I voted for Hillary Clinton. I'm in a swing state. I'm in Michigan. And yeah. so I was like, look, you know, you may not agree with me, but I think tactical. I went uh, and did some tactical voting tactically to try to stop Donald Trump because we saw what happened, of course, with his administration and, and what happened with COVID. And unfortunately, uh, you know, that the, the entire Trump administration had so many people going, oh, we can't risk that again. I guess we'll go with safe Joe Biden, um, which I don't think is going to turn out very well in the long run either. Uh, and it's just, you know, it, it really is indicative of how messed up our political system is when we can what have you, conditions that are so bad to allow for someone like Donald Trump. What do you anticipate is going to happen? Um, obviously, it's pretty safe to say what's going to happen in the midterms at this point. But going forward into 24, uh, I mean, right now, you know, we're in Florida, so we're pretty we're pretty realistic about DeSantis's chances, which I think are really good, um, especially as uh, Trump, uh, as we saw, particularly as it relates to these primary elections that just happened and especially how he really got, you know, his butt kicked in, in Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. Uh, I think that DeSantis is coming, and I think that he right now is tracking to win it all uh, come 24. The question becomes, because we all know 
being their parent. It is Buttigieg. They are making it painfully clear <sighs> that this is who they're trying to Groom. You know, groom to He's the, already groomed. Everything about know, him is groomed. It, it's as obvious as it gets. Do you see there being some type of a progressive challenge? Uh, I know it's kind of dire right now, but mm. I, I do think that there's going to be something. What, what do you how do you see it unfolding? Well, look, uh, I'm just going to be honest and say that I'm not exactly the best at uh, doing long term prognostications. <laughs> uh, and so I'm just going to be upfront about that. Because well, we, we've got so much time left before that even happens. Uh, look, if, if you had asked us, you know, back in 2015, 2014, even, is Donald Trump going to run? I think most of us wouldn't have even seen it coming. No. Uh, honestly, a lot of us uh, believe that. And I don't know. I can't, I'm not going to speak for you, but I thought it was going to be like, oh, it's Hillary versus Jeb, like the most yeah. boring snore fest that'll ever happen. And then, oh, my God, Bernie Sanders. Oh, my God, Donald Trump. Oh, this is nuts. So I don't necessarily know what's going to happen. What kind of clown is, you know, going to crawl out of the Republican sewers versus whatever kind of corporate clone they're going to bring out on the Democratic uh, Democratic side. What I don't see, unfortunately, right now, and and maybe maybe I'm wrong, any kind of progressive. The, the, unfortunately, I, what I see from the progressive movement is we're sort of aimless. We're sort of leaderless at this point, a little bit listless. We haven't had anybody that's really floated up to the top at this point. And again, there is, there is time for that to happen, but uh, so far, I don't know. Uh, And that is very concerning seeing that there's not really anybody that's going to, that is trying to take the mantle uh, up of Bernie. And even if they try would they be even accepted by the party uh, or no. by the, not by the party, sorry, but by the, by the progressive movement, they're never going to be accepted by the party. I, misspoke. I think it needs to happen organically. I think when of there course. is somebody, there will be somebody. I think Bernie did an amazing job getting us to where we are. I never would have expected that, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he took it as far as he was comfortable taking it basically. And that's, that's, you know, that when people get on him, it drives me crazy. I don't, it's like nobody works harder. He's just, I just think that you can't, nobody's perfect, but um, there is, to me, it's not, it has to be an organic thing. Like it needs to come from the ground up. It needs to be somebody who's part of this labor movement. It needs to be somebody who isn't in the system. And by not in the system, I don't mean a trust fund baby like Donald Trump. I mean it. Or better. Or better, whatever. Right. No, it needs to be organic. And if you try to Mm -hmm. force it, my concern is when you try to force it, what you end up doing is wasting time, effort, and money, Mm -hmm. further discouraging people on the left. And in the meantime, what we should be doing is working on local down ballot races and taking over the party at the state levels. And, And if we would focus on that, then a leader will emerge, not in time necessarily for 24. And that might be just the reality that we have. But I think that could be by 28 if we start getting crap together and building an infrastructure and working on down ballot things. But people Mm -hmm. seem to make this a vanity project and they seem to just want to be who that person is. And I think we need to focus on community aid, local, like we need to be building an infrastructure. What do you, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are very simple. I want to nominate Jen to become the leader of the movement. I really think you're yes. doing a wonderful job. And if somebody is going to be the heir apparent to my movement, I want it to be. I think oh, you do for a good God's job. sake. Jeff, I just You didn't to- even endorse me. 
<laughs> I did what I could. Unfortunately, Debbie Wasserman Schultz Debbie always manages to get in the way, and I couldn't go against my good friend Joe. That's what happened. Jeff, I want to thank you for doing a wonderful oh. job with your show. I like that nice uh, plaque you have in the background. It looks like you did a really good job. Hopefully, we'll make it gold one day. You know, uh, I don't know how many subscribers it takes to get there, but, you know, we'll, <laughs> But I do believe that we are on the cusp of making a much better movement. It's going to take some time. Yeah. But you must get involved in local down-ballot races. Yes. That is very important. Mm -hmm. You also mm -hmm. have to focus on nonpartisan types of races. You have to focus on open primaries and ranked choice voting. Ranked choice These voting. things are very important. Yes. If you focus on those types of things, then by the time you get to 24, maybe 28, whenever that might be. Well, that's my point. You will have a much better opportunity to get this non-corporate movement where it needs to go. That's what I'm saying. I hope you enjoyed my little <laughs> spiel. It's good to see you all. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, right, Jeff? Like, I think that like, we need to mm -hmm. focus on the infrastructure, not so much in finding a messiah. Yes. I think yes. that we tend to we tend to do that um, and then we're disappointed with the outcome. But in mm -hmm. reality, we're, we're, we need to take more. We always talk about our rights. I'm very big about I'm all about rights, but I'm also mm -hmm. about responsibility. Like, so you've all these people are willing. They want my right for this, my right for that. But they're not talking about what is their responsibility mm -hmm. um, in being part of a society. I think we just need to follow the GOP model. I mean, honestly, if they could. <laughs> well, if you could. In lift terms up, of local. Yeah. If you could lift up. George W. Bush to become president of the United States. That has nothing to do with him. That has everything to do with the infrastructure that the party has built. If you follow that similar strategy, we need an infrastructure. I, I think that that's really where it's at. I mean, we had a conversation with, with you know, we won't name the person, but we had a conversation earlier today with somebody who was basically pointing out, even here in Florida, you've got at least like a dozen races for state house in Florida that are not even being challenged. Right. Just uncontested. And, and they could be. And like, it's, it's, it's not like it's a foregone conclusion that it, it'll definitely go to the GOP. It, it's in just, a lot of them there are, but there's a ton that aren't. It's just being, right. it, it, it's, it's like, not my doing God, anything. that's where, that's where I think Local. the movement can, mm -hmm. it, it, that's, that's the future at yeah. least in mm -hmm. terms of how much, how we've honed our skills and what we've learned over the past five, six years. I think that that is the next evolution. Please, please bring us home, my yeah. friend. Yeah. Look, all of those are fantastic points. Uh, you're absolutely right. We do need to bring that infrastructure to build that infrastructure. And with that infrastructure comes money because maybe in some of those races, there was somebody who wanted to run, but just couldn't have the resources to do so, to be able to challenge the you know big corporate candidates. And so I think that's very important. Money, resources, uh, get out the vote. All that stuff is incredibly important. And let me just add on that I think labor is incredibly important. Yeah, I don't think that we can really do anything without a strong labor base. And, and by the way, you know, labor isn't just progressive, isn't just, you know, uh, on the left. Labor is labor. And, and we all have that commonality of, hey, man, we got to work to survive. So how about we, you know, work together and we try to build uh, a, you know, a, a platform where we can argue for better wages so we can argue for better working conditions so we can argue for benefits so we can argue, you know, for, for, for our politicians and put politicians into power. who are going to not only free people, but also the companies from the burden of having to provide health care through, you know, have a universal single payer healthcare system. That is something that we can do. That is something that labor 
can get together and do. And I understand that not every union is great, <clears throat> police unions. Uh, <laughs> and of course, the culinary union, uh, where you had some of the bosses that were against Bernie Sanders. I, I think it was an Intercept story about that back in 2019, 2020, yeah. something like that, uh, where they talked about how union leadership was getting kickbacks from getting insurance companies. So again, unions are generally really good. Sometimes union leadership, not so good, out of step with the workers. But that still, labor power, very important. That's a very good way of also organizing people. And by the way, if you're also looking to do a general strike, that's another way. You have to have that organization through labor. Labor has to be involved in this movement. Labor used to be an incredibly huge power in the United States. It is not anymore. And I think this is why uh, one reason that we have seen uh, so many of our, you know, rights and, 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 and as well as like organizing in the workplace, uh, wages and things like that stagnate and decrease while corporate profits skyrocket, while corporate power gets centralized uh, and where you have so much and consolidated, where you have so much uh, resources being directed at progressive candidates. We got to build labor and we have to build a media uh, and, you know, we're all doing this job together to try to build that media infrastructure to then support those progressive candidates as well uh, and, and to build all that infrastructure. So we have a lot of work to do uh, and it's going to be difficult and it's going to be time consuming. Uh, but we have to do this if we ever want to challenge and defeat that system. Let me ask you a question just while you're on here. And this is just sort of like off the cuff. Yeah. Sure. What are your thoughts about like my thought is and I, I, I see both sides of this. We have a pack. OK, we have a pack. And I really like the idea of having it be an anti-corporate pack. So in other words, when like Nina Turner is being like besieged with smear campaign from the corporate packs that she is, I want the anti-corporate pack that could be just as big of a slush fund, mind you, to come in and say, here, let us help you and do what we're going to do. Like, I almost feel mm -hmm. like it's a Batman thing, like a Bruce Wayne thing, like, mm -hmm. a, you know. And so what are your thoughts on that? If it were completely transparent, even though it doesn't need to be, I would be. And mm -hmm. it would be completely based on fighting corporate pack money. I mean, look, if you're going to fight fire with fire, I don't yeah. have a problem with that. Uh, again, the, the the whole thing that I would love to see in the end game uh, would be to, you know, eliminate all money from politics. Agreed. But yes. we're not going to get there until we can actually challenge the corporate money. And so I don't have an issue with PACs uh, as far as like people PACs, you know, right. people PACs to take on corporate PACs. Again, that transparency is incredibly important and you're actually doing something to challenge that. I think that's that's a fine idea. Let's let's Thank fight you. fire with fire. You Thank know, you. let's let's go after the big corporate PACs uh, and challenge them and support and boost our candidates. Uh, and then down the end of the line, when we've actually won enough power. Then we can get all that uh, corporate money and union money and private money out of our system uh, and, and get rid of that corruption. 
It is, a, it is a generational change, and that is something yep. that we are really working towards. And Jeff, you're definitely a part of it. Guys, check out Waldorf Nation. It is on YouTube. It's part of TYT Network. Uh, Jeff does fantastic work, as you can see. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, you. Uh, maybe uh, we could come on your show at some point. We have, uh, We're always wanting to cross-pollinate, and we, we would love, yeah, love, we'd sure. love to break 10,000 subs. Like, I got to tell you, I've got mm-hmm. small goals. Yeah. No, if, we, uh, if we're able to crack 10, we're at 7,600 right now. We're so stagnant. We're, it's if sad. we're able to get there, that's <laughs> going to definitely help. And I think the more we can cross-pollinate, yeah. it, it'll really help. And, and like you said, um, we do need a network mm-hmm. and, and we don't have to agree on everything. No, you know? no the, we don't. It, it really comes down to the fact that we are able to have these conversations that get us mm-hmm. a step closer to where we're trying to go. We can't thank you enough for coming on this evening. And we certainly look forward to chatting with you again soon. Bye, Jeff. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Have a good one, brother. So he was a great guest. No, he's a great guest. And he really, like I said, this is somebody who's been at it for a long time. And he really, he's the type of progressive that most people should be looking at and saying, yeah, if progressives are like Jeff Waldorf, I think we would get a lot further in the movement. Oh, he's just very reasonable. We're yes. about, I'm about reason, people. How about somebody who's running for governor of California who's reasonable? Could that I don't be possible? Know. Can't, I can't possibly handle that. I think it is possible. Uh, but he is a friend of the show. He has been here before. One of our fir- one of our earliest guests, actually. And he is, is actually nice. doing this in a way that I think if there is a state that could really use it, it is California, an independent candidate for governor of California. And why? Because California has jungle primaries. And since there's going to be all of these candidates bopping back and Which forth. Which isn't as good other, as ranked choice voting. No, but it's better than what we yes. have here. Definitely. And so as a result of that, this is a dark horse campaign. Michael Schellenberger, welcome back to Generational Change. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Hi, absolutely. So we never really talked politics when you were on because you came on to talk about nuclear energy. And and again, you're a person of reason, which I very much appreciate um, and not fear based and and stuff like that. But we never really talked politics. Like, I don't think we even really discussed it at all. But so I think everything is interconnected from a political standpoint, because what we did talk about is one of the most important political issues of our time. Yes. Of course, the environment. Yes. We obviously went a great lengths to talk about the importance of nuclear if we're going to get off of coal and natural gas and there are people who constantly want to harp on, well, it's not safe enough and it's not. Well, you know what? It is safer than coal and natural gas. So it's safer than imploding into the center of the universe. Yeah, that's that's another way to look at it. But Mike, what possessed you to do this? Obviously, it's a very daunting task. But like I said, I kind of I get this with the way the political environment is these days, this is a dark horse campaign that maybe not enough people are talking about as of yet, but the more they hear you, the more, especially with the way that the Democrats are no different than the Republican dominated Florida. It's like, yeah, people are sick of the division. They're sick of the corruption. We need a new, uh, we need a new path. So how did you end up doing this? And and what has been sort of like this initial uh, run of the mill when it comes to, you know, connecting with voters and, and the reaction you've been getting? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. It's a real pleasure to be back with you and good to see you again. So, yeah, I mean, I'm running because I'm just heartbroken by the humanitarian disaster on the streets. I'm angry about the ways in which the politicians in California have made the so-called homeless crisis so much worse. You know, we saw homelessness increase 31 percent over the last 10 years in California, even as it declined 18 percent in the rest of the United States. 
but I'm also inspired by what I've seen in Europe and the way that they've been able to create a very humane and efficient approach to both mental health, drug addiction, and housing. And I wanted to bring that vision back to California. Yeah, that's that's amazing. You know, but did you consider, okay, you're obviously running as an independent. California is pretty blue. Um, there has to be some sort of strategy involved in how this is done. That's just the reality. Like you, you have to do it. So what was the impetus to not run within the party when that's just generally, you know, where people go in California? Yeah, I mean, the truth is I actually changed my party affiliation from Democrat to independent last year after I finished writing my book, San Francisco. I just couldn't any longer be a Democrat. I couldn't in good conscience be a part of the Democratic Party. I just knew too much. I wrote a whole book about the ways in which, you know, because it's a super majority Democrats out here for like the last decade. So there's not it's hard to blame these things on Republicans. Democrats just get they just pass the budget. They don't even consult Republicans at this point. And so, but it's even more than that. I go all the way back to the 1960s. I point out that really it was President Kennedy's agenda that resulted in the deinstitutionalization, the closure of psychiatric hospitals. And I became struck by the ways in which progressives went from in the 19, the early part of the 20th century, creating a number of important progressive institutions, really since the 19th century, psychiatric hospitals, hydroelectric dams, the nuclear power plants, modern policing, even reform-based uh, prisons and jails, to then the post the second half of the 20th century, seeking to dismantle these institutions that are really fundamental to civilization. And I started to wonder why that was. Like, what is it that led for people that are so-called so progressives to be dismantling institutions that are so important to civilization? And then I wanted to uh, figure out, well, what would an agenda be to recreate these institutions in ways that are more humane and efficient? And so... For me, the decision to leave the Democratic Party came long before I was interested in running for governor. But when and, and I was actually uh, I had a candidate that I endorsed in the recall last year. I thought he was going to run again. He decided not to run. So I ended up getting in pretty late. And so part of the reason, you know, we've had a huge success so far. We've raised over a million dollars. There's now a super PAC effort behind my candidacy. We're feeling very good about our prospects of coming in second on June 7th, which would qualify us for the runoff in November. But genuinely, I am independent. I mean, you know, Jen, from the last time we talked, uh, pro-nuclear, yeah. uh, longtime advocate on climate change, but I realized renewables can solve that problem. I like to take a real ground level view of these problems. You know, for the homeless issue, I spent a lot of time interviewing homeless people, so-called homeless people in California. I went to the Netherlands. I went and saw how they did it in the Netherlands. And I wanted to create a real practical approach to this. And for me, that's really a balance of multiple things. You need to enforce laws. When you don't enforce laws, people don't follow them. And you don't have a civilization, you don't have a society. And the other thing about enforcing laws is that that's often the way that people who are sick with mental illness or addiction get the care they need. There's a lot of talk about having a non-police response to mental illness. The problem with that is, is that there are so many mentally ill and drug addicted people on the streets and we don't have the laws for in some ways, good reasons, in some ways, bad reasons. But we don't have these laws that just allow us to hospitalize involuntarily people for just having mental illness. We had that experience in the 60s, sort of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, where you sort of see people getting hospitalized involuntarily. And the society said we didn't want to do that. So the result is that 
oftentimes people only get the care they need when they break the law. So you need to enforce the laws. You need to have universal psychiatric care. So, you know, just at a spiritual and moral level, I believe everybody should have health care. It's one part of my progressive background I still believe in. I think we should have universal health care. As governor, though, the priority will be on universal psychiatric care, particularly at the state level. We have 58 counties inefficiently offering the same services, particularly the same administrative overhead. It's grossly inefficient. We need to be able to move people into different parts of the state, into different kinds of institutions. So that's the second part of it is Cal Psych, universal psychiatric care. And then the third part is shelter first. Shelter, similarly, basic, safe, clean shelter should be a universal right, but housing should be earned, meaning that housing is something that you can earn through abstinence, through making progress on your personal program to taking your psychiatric meds. But the taxpayers don't have an obligation to provide anybody who wants one their own studio apartment in Los Angeles. As nice as that sounds, there's just simply not enough apartment units in San Francisco or Los Angeles to just give out apartment units. Better is to make it a reward for for good behavior. So those are the that's the sort of the pragmatic, I think, post ideological approach to homelessness. It's enforce the laws, universal psychiatry, and a shelter first housing earned approach. All right, I'm going to put you on the hot seat right off the bat. Um, we are very friendly with Representative Ash Kalra, who presented the CalCare bill. Uh, was able to make it through a couple of committees, um, but the word went out pretty quickly uh, through Newsom's, uh, what you would call handlers, I guess, that basically said, if this bill gets to my desk, I'm going to veto it. And so if CalCare, which is a universal healthcare system, were to get to your desk as governor, would you sign it into law? Unlikely. And the reason is, is that I just don't know that it's necessary. You know, I think that so first of all, it didn't. It, it wouldn't have made it to his desk, I don't think. Uh, so I'm not sure I believe that story. Um, that sounds like a story told by somebody who wanted to basically accuse the governor of being the main obstacle to it. The governor promised single payer health care, universal health care when he ran. He knew he couldn't deliver on it. He's just he doesn't tell the truth. He has a difficult relationship with the truth. I think a better approach is to start with psychiatry. We can. We have a urgent humanitarian disaster right now in terms of psychiatric care. I'm very, um, I have a strong moral belief that we should have universal health care and then we should have start with universal psychiatry, but I'm pragmatic about how we get there. You know, when I was in the Netherlands, they explained they have universal health care, but it's not single payer. They just achieved it similarly through the way that we've done it through a private insurer model. They just make sure they just basically subsidize folks who can't afford it to get the insurance they need. But it's not, um, in some ways, I admire the simplicity of the single payer system that they have in Canada and France, but I don't think we necessarily have to have it. And you have a kind of system that has been in place since really the, I mean, really for over a hundred years of a private insurer model. I think we can work with that. I'd like to take on challenges that we think are ones that we can solve you know, rather than taking on quixotic battles. So for me, I think that for me, that would start with universal psychiatry, not single payer. I understand what you're saying. Obviously, we're very big advocates for universal health care. Uh, I think you are definitely taking the more moderate approach, uh, fighting battles that you can win. Obviously, it's a very daunting task 
to take on private insurance and big pharma. But what we always try to message is the key ingredient here is eliminating the for-profit middlemen in between us and our doctors. They do not have a reason to exist. They are a complete bloat on the system, especially when you consider how California in particular has a serious uh, budget crisis, I guess you could say. And I think that that is obviously a uh, that is an issue where I think you would agree, Jen, we are definitely not going to be on the same page on. But I do think that that is a key ingredient uh, in terms of how you ultimately rally a lot of people, because I do think we're going to get there. Like you said, it's a question of how it's going to happen. Um, maybe it's a statewide initiative first before it moves to the federal level. That's what we think is probably most likely. But I do think that that is a key ingredient. Would you would you say that it's fair that the for-profit middlemen in between us and our doctors is a big problem and we do have to address that? I don't know. I mean, like I said, if it's such a big problem, then why did Netherlands achieve universal health care in a private insurer model? Well, because in the United States, we don't have a choice. In the United States, you have to buy insurance, whereas right. in the Netherlands and other parts of the world, private insurance is an option. If you want to have, if you want to be on the private system, they even have that in the UK and other parts of Europe, which I think makes a lot of sense. If you want to have that private supplemental insurance, I don't have a problem with that. Would, would you agree? No, yeah, that's, not, that's not accurate. That's not what the no. Netherlands, you're, you're, that's not the Dutch model. The Dutch model is similar to our model. They've achieved universal health, achieved universal health insurance coverage through a private insurer model. They just went ahead and subs, they just... It, just think of it as what they did is it's just Obamacare extended to the whole population. So, you know, like I said, I'm not um, I don't have any spiritual. Uh, I, I, there's something about the single payer model that I find elegant, but it's not the only way to achieve universal health care. That's fair. Well, we can leave it there. Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. Just for me, healthcare shouldn't be a profit industry. It's just not, it's like corrections, education, healthcare, these are things that are, to me should just be part of living in a civilization. One of the benefits of being, having the resources that we have and the wealth that we have, that that should just be something that we we have. And it, and when you make, when you add a profit motive to those things, we end up in the capitalistic implosion in which we're in, where there's no, it's completely unfettered, unregulated. It's just like, it's like the wild west of capitalism. And that's the problem. And those other countries are very highly regulated in what they do. Like their government doesn't let their pharmaceutical companies rape their people on a daily basis. Those countries don't have medical bankruptcies accounting for half of people's bankruptcies. Like, I just think that it's because they don't allow their corporations to rape their people to the level that ours does. And as long as it's a profit motive, we're just going to have that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. Although I would also, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree in part. I would also point out though that, you know, what I get to in San Francisco, you know, my my book on homelessness, crime, and the environment, where I describe the Dutch model. I mean, I think that, for example, they did not have an opioid crisis. They did not overprescribe opioids. Mm -hmm. So there's two parts to that. On the one hand, for sure, doctors had an incentive in the United States to overprescribe opioids. The pharmaceutical industry had an interest in selling opioids. They manipulated the regulatory process. At the same time, there was a kind of cultural demand from people for pain meds at the grassroots level where there was a sense of entitlement. I should not have to have any pain. And it was at all levels of the culture. Whereas when I talked to folks in the Netherlands, there was much more a sense of you have to tough it out. You know, you have to. You know, I'll give you an example. I, I had an appendectomy last year 
Um, I've been there. And, uh, you know, you, it's, it's a, first of all, it's totally brilliant surgery the way they do it now, because it's just a laparoscopic surgery. It's a one day procedure. It's quite amazing. And they, you know, there's, they just crank through people. It's very efficient. But then when they sent me home, they sent me home with a little bottle of opioids. Oh yeah. Not a, not a lot, but a few. And I said, why are you giving these to me? And they were like, well, because you might need them. And I was like, but do, do we think that Advil, which by the way, I think is a wonder drug and I'm a huge advocate. I, Advil. Agree. Um, I, agree. <laughs> I was like, do we think Advil won't work? And they were like, it might work, but just in case it doesn't see the Dutch don't do that, that you would say, come back if you need the pain meds or even, you know, there's just more, there's, so there's a, I, I quote, there's a Dutch saying, I explained this process, this difference to a friend of mine in, in Holland. And he said, he goes, the Dutch have a saying, soft doctors make wounds stink. Meaning soft, do weak, soft doctors don't scrub the wounds and make them bleed and get them properly clean. And then they get infected and stink. That's the, that was the, that was the folk expression. And so I think there's something there and that's part of where the book goes. And this is, I think, where I am trying to get post-ideological, where, yes, on the one hand, I agree that you need universal entitlements in, to have a civilization, including a right to shelter, a right to health care. But I also think you need something in the culture which says, you know, you have to take responsibility, too. You can't sleep on the sidewalk. You can go into shelter. You can go into rehab. You can get psychiatric care, but you can't sleep on the sidewalk because the sidewalk belongs to all of us. And you might cry about it. You might you might say that you're oppressed or you're a victim, but that's not acceptable. Tough. You have to tough it up. You do need tough love. There is some reciprocity here around some obligation. And similarly, I don't think that we should create the entitlement among our the sense among our children that that things should be easy. You know, we're having a thing here in California where the governor's people are trying to get rid of algebra before high school. Why? Because it's hard. Because it's hard and because there's racial disparities. Less than a third of all public school students are math proficient. Only 10% of black students, only 15% of Latino students are. We all feel bad about this. Nobody likes these racial disparities. But the answer is to study more math. The answer is a longer school day. The answer is more homework. The answer is not to lower the standards. And so for me, you know, where, where San Francisco comes out and where I came out of my campaign is we need to get to a rebalancing of entitlements and responsibilities, that there's some social contract where the society does have certain obligations to the citizens, but citizens as individuals also have obligations to society. We're speaking with Michael Schellenberger, candidate for California governor. Uh, I think it's also very important to talk about one of the biggest problems that exists in California, which is, of course, cost of living. Uh, it is the most expensive state by far in the country to live in, and there are a variety of reasons for that. How are you planning to address that if you are fortunate enough to become the next leader of California? Yeah, I mean, so there, the cost of living is ridiculous. The main cause of it is housing, but then there's in a sort of distant second energy. We have we have the most expensive. Uh, I think we have the most expensive gasoline and the second most expensive electricity in the United States. But housing is the main event. So let's start with that one. 
we don't have enough housing. I mean, <laughs> housing is expensive because California is the best state to live in in the United States. Everybody wants to live here, but there's not enough housing. So you need more housing. Why don't we have enough housing? We don't have enough housing because everybody's in sort of a prisoner's dilemma. The Everybody resists more housing in their neighborhood because we don't want to, well, for a variety of reasons, people don't want more people in their neighborhood. People complain about traffic. There's too many people on the hiking trails. There's nowhere to park your car. There's construction going on. So everybody wants the housing to be somewhere else. We need to build societal consensus. We need some sort of reciprocity here. We're in a prisoner's dilemma. We need to get out of it. So what I'm proposing is to build a societal consensus through a process that I learned of actually in South Korea. They've also done it in Germany. It's called a citizen's jury, where we impanel a representative randomly selected sample of the electorate and they hold nine to 12 town hall meetings, let's say 12 town hall meetings over 12 months across California to deliberate over a couple of days each time with experts about how to solve this problem. For me, it's pretty straightforward. You just need more housing everywhere. And that means that you need to have some understanding that you're gonna get more tall apartments in the urban core, but you're also gonna have some more suburbs. But you know, I live in the Berkeley Hills. I have a huge backyard, it's absurd. We have, our backyard's too big. We should have a cottage. We should be able to have a cottage back here um, that's inappropriate for our neighborhood. But I think you have to build this consensus over time. As governor, I wanna bring folks together and build that consensus. I think it's probably similar to where you guys are. It's a battle between yimbies and nimbies. There's some people that want, yes, they want more density. And there's other people that uh, don't want any more housing. We just have to build some of that agreement. As governor, that's what I'll do. Our housing prices are never going to be as cheap as they are in Ohio or Michigan, but we can get more abundant housing and build more housing. We have an obligation to do that. I think on one energy, of the, no, sorry, go ahead. No, please finish your thought. Yeah. Oh, on energy, we need more energy. <laughs> um, there's two kinds of environmentalists. There's pro-human, pro-growth, pro-abundance environmentalists, and then there's anti-human, anti-growth, pro-scarcity environmentalists. I'm on the pro, I'm on team pro-human. That's why I'm pro-nuclear. We make energy cheaper by making it more abundant. When energy becomes more abundant, it also becomes cleaner. So we actually reduced our carbon emissions in the United States by 22% between 2005 and 2020 by making natural gas abundant and replacing coal. Similarly, in our next wave, we're gonna make nuclear more abundant, that can replace fossil fuels and that will lower carbon emissions. So that's the key. We have one last beautiful nuclear plant that I've been trying to save for the last six years. We've made a huge amount of progress. We've built a pro-nuclear movement. We've gone from being a minority in support of nuclear in California to having a plurality of support in keeping our last nuclear plant open. I'm very excited that the governor himself has just announced that he has changed his mind. He may decide to keep the plant open if he's reelected. Either way, that's why I'm running is to make sure we keep Diablo Canyon open and expand nuclear in California. Well, I don't trust anything that Newsom is selling because his whole uh, his whole motivation is to get reelected and then run for president. So uh, I think everything that he does is tremendously calculated. And the only time he ever says anything worthwhile is when election season is around. Once it's over, he goes back to doing what he does. And yeah. so one of the things that you did point out, which I think is absolutely correct, is when it comes to the overwhelming cost of living in California. It's very similar to Florida in not that 
you're right that housing is necessary, but California suffers from the same problem that Florida suffers from, and that is everybody wants to be within like a 10-mile radius of the ocean. And when you have that issue, when you have plenty of places in San Bernardino County, Riverside County, the Foothill region, northern country, uh, there is plenty of space. But everyone wants to be along the I-5 corridor. And that is a mindset that hasn't really changed in this country. People want to be along the Gulf Coast or the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, There is a lot of territory in Florida that is unaccounted for. uh, But again, people just seem to find their way into that same area. Now, granted, um, there's not as much of an appeal to central or middle region Florida as let's say, middle region California. Will will there be a sort of a concerted effort to make it more appealing for people to live in places that are not necessarily Palm Springs, but there is a lot that California has to offer, and it isn't just about what's on the ocean front? Absolutely. And guys, I'm afraid this will have to be my last question because i got to jump at 30. Yeah. So great to be with you guys. Totally agree. California is an amazing state. I mean, anybody that's been here, driven through it, flown over it, knows why I fell in love with it when I was a boy, why I wanted to move out here as soon as I could after college. It's a spectacular place to live, even when you're not on the coast. You know, it's one of the rare, I mean, it's the state that spawns the largest number of ecosystems. You know, we have incredible high deserts. We have, we have, um, uh, you know, uh, forests that are um, almost uh, uh, rainforests in 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 rainfall. You know, we have incredible diversity of ecosystems to enjoy. Incredible diversity of places to live. Now, with remote work, it allows people to only come into the office, you know, two or three days a week, which means that they can have a longer commute time. You know, it's one of the Marchetti's constants, which is that most of us just want about an hour a day of commute. But if you only have to go to work two or three days a week, then you can have a a longer commute during a few days and then work that other time at home. So I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about this state, but I do think we have to somehow trans, I think the the big picture, and this is a good way to end it, I think we need to grow up a bit as a society. We have a very, America in general, I think is such a young country. We're founded on freedom. I, we have a statue of Liberty on the East coast. I think we need a statue of responsibility on the West coast. California is the right place for it, but we've been sort of at a Peter Pan attitude, haven't wanted to grow up, haven't really wanted to take responsibility. And I think the place for that to start is in California. I think it also starts with getting beyond a lot of the extremism on left and right to reaffirm some of our practical shared values. We're going to have basic care for folks. It doesn't need to be gold plated, but we need to have basic care. But with that comes a set of obligations from everyone to the society, whether it's paying taxes, whether it's respecting the laws. For me, that's an agenda that I think makes sense for the 21st century. It's an agenda that can bring together folks that I think have been at loggerheads for so long. Schellenberger for governor.com. You definitely bring what I would consider to be a libertarian moderate approach to politics, which I think is definitely welcomed, even if we don't agree on everything, which it's safe to say we don't, but that's okay. Um, I think it's important to have these conversations because again, we are so divided as a nation right now. We need to be able to find common ground. And even though we disagreed on some things, we certainly agreed on others. Guys, go to schellenbergerforgovernor.com. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. I know it was an abbreviated conversation. You Hopefully guys. we'll have it again and we'll definitely be in touch. Thanks, Michael. Thanks so much. Great talking with you guys. Bye. Take care, brother. 
So again, uh, dude, he's he's uh, he's basically you know he, he's got a basically moderate Republican type approach, which is okay. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but again, there are obvious uh, points that I think uh, we would disagree on. Oh um, yeah, I don't think his. Uh, I don't think his take on healthcare. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is, if you want to win, especially as an independent in California, you got to go all in on healthcare because it's one of the things that's creating this massive income inequality and cost of living problem in the state. I mean, if people didn't have to worry about these ridiculous healthcare costs, all could- costs. I, I just like I. I just I think that he, he's very specific about things that are way broader than that. Like, I just, I think that there was somewhat of a pull yourselves up by your bootstrap kind of vibe (laughs) that I got from that to some extent. And I, I do agree about personal responsibility that I do agree. And I do agree with, you know, yeah, generally people follow laws. I think most people do. I I think that actually there have been studies that show that. Um, But I, I don't think that that addresses the the sickness that is capitalism and when you're looking at other countries the big difference is okay he's saying that it's where we should just sort of man up more and we shouldn't need painkillers as much that is that is true but it's also true that in those other countries they don't have no in those other countries what i'm sitting there thinking is they probably don't they're they're not having paid ads from pharmaceuticals 24/7 they're not having they, those governments don't allow the pharmaceutical industries to be giving million dollar bonuses to the reps that are being able to unload the Shwoka. most amount of opioids Shwoka, people so you got to hold it childhood yeah really really don't okay so that's part of the problem this thing is really, really you're stupid. challenged i ain't challenged i'm just stubborn all right, whatever. So it isn't just a matter of the people sucking it up. The people in the communities that were most ravaged by the opioid ec- epidemic, they were purposefully targeted by big pharma to become addicted and be spending that kind of money. So those countries like the Netherlands and, you know, uh, whatever other countries we're talking right, about Sammy, damn in, right. in Deutschland over there, their government does not allow big pharma doesn't allow to price run gouging. rampant. It doesn't allow price gouging. No. And so they don't have the same profit motive in those countries to have everybody be addicted to opioids. So it, it, it's If you like, smoke that, you're not going to be addicted to opioids, or at least it would lessen the chance of you being addicted. <laughs> well, they, that's to why that. they don't want – that's one of the reasons that big pharma fights against marijuana legalization because it takes away from their you know industry. But so there's a lot of flaws, I think, in the trying to compare our situation to – to look to another country's self-sufficiency for God. Yes, they also take care of their labor force. Those countries, a lot of them don't even have a minimum wage. They don't need a minimum wage. Because their union strength is so great, as it is in Scandinavia. Right. That's another thing. So there's so many variables in this conversation that I think are not being accounted for in that in in that mindset. I think Michael has some good ideas, especially as it relates to the to the environment. Um, and I'm all for mental health. Yes. I just think we need all health. Um, I think it's all important. I think it sounded to me- You are not to going me- to win in California if you do not have a clear- You see, you can be libertarian, but you have to be libertarian left. Like that is without question. In California, uh, the fact that you have 
a real piece of legislation that is legitimate that could give health care to everyone in California. Who was that guy running for state assembly that was wanting that was really talking about building up good light rail to have increased housing? He was up in like the Silicon Valley area and he was running for like state assembly or something. I don't remember. Do you know who I'm talking about? Blanking, but we had he was I want to say he was Indian. Well, we had Ash Kara on the it, podcast, but not it's not Ash. Him. Um, I know who that is. No, it was, and he was, oh my God, he was, he was older gentleman. No, and it was state assembly. And he was talking about the importance of creating better transit to have better, um, housing opportunities. That was the whole point. Like he was great. Older gentleman. Oh, for God's sake. We'll figure it out. I'll I'll figure it out. But anyway, he's running in California and he was definitely, he was an engineer. Yeah, that's helping. That's going to make it easier. It was really smart. So we're not able to figure that out, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> and what do we have coming up? Well, we have Memorial Day, obviously, coming up. It's Memorial Day weekend, so a lot of crazy stuff. I have a lot of problems with Memorial Day. Yeah. I have yeah. a lot of problems with Memorial Day, people. Yeah. Talk about grandstanding. You want to best honor people? Stop creating veterans that you refuse to take care of. And then we don't have to be having a lot of these Jessica Cisneros, Rob. and Oh, fire breathing, Rob. Thank you. uh, Unfortunately, uh, Cisneros looks like she's going to lose by 177 votes. And thank you, Speaker Pelosi. You know what? Thank you, Steny Hoyer. Thank you, Jim Clyburn. And thank you, Akeem Jeffries. Maybe she should have come on our show. I don't know if that would have made up 177. Probably not. But I'm just saying, it's like, you know what? There's so many things that go into this. It's not one thing or another yeah, thing. Well, it's you know, a lot the of things. Is, but it's money. One thing I will tell you guys, and this is very important, unless you're actually on the ground with the campaign and can actually see what's going on, which is always so interesting because sometimes you kind of need like a volunteer who's on a campaign to basically be out there letting people know, yeah, it's really going well. Yeah, they're doing a great job or I got to be honest, they're really not doing everything they should be doing right now. I don't know enough about her campaign. I can't make any comments about Jessica Cisneros campaign. I know she had Bernie out there. You know, she definitely had support, um, but she also had a lot of people working against her. And so, you know, she had, I don't know. I think it might have, that might have leveled out in terms of support she got. Got to be honest, Rob. um, We already had Josh Wheel on the podcast and we like him. He is the type of he is the type of candidate who really should be running for one of these open seats. It is unfortunate that it's this way, but Val Demings is the nominee. Like that's just the way it is. It's it really is unfortunate, and we're and not so, fans, and we're not supporters. No. And I like Josh. Um, how was the Billy Joel? The Billy Joel concert was unbelievable. It never gets old to me. It's amazing to me that he can come out and play two and a half hours of music. That is old. He hasn't not. I don't mean just stamina wise. He hasn't released a new album. Has no interest in releasing an album. And everybody there knows all the words to all the songs. And it never gets old. I find it amazing. And and to be able to go with my son was really really cool. Who is a piano player. Yeah. And he's a huge Billy Joel fan. I got to be honest. I thought one of Springsteen's best concerts was when he did the River Tour. When he basically just brought back the you know one of his most successful albums from the beginning of the 80s and you know he would play the entire album and of course you know he's you can't talk about anything without it getting the springsteen no but i'm pointing out that it wasn't about well i gotta release an album so let me just do all this new stuff i gotta tell you it probably was one of his most successful tours was we're doing the river tour and yeah he did some of the outtakes from the album but overall uh, i think that was definitely one do you see how you turned out about you when he was just asking me how the billy joel concert was absolutely I'm just saying how you did that. Uh, it is very timeless and it's amazing. Will, Here's what I don't understand. This is something that somebody needs to explain to me. 
why does Billy Joel not have a black fan base at all? Like not at all. And I'm going to say this for a few reasons. One, his music is very R&B jazz based. That's his background. He loves that stuff the most. Ray Charles is who he named his daughter after and did wrote songs for him. And by the way, when I see, and I watch a lot of reaction channels and whenever I see black people reacting to Billy Joel, they love it. And I think it a lot, honestly. But yet there's not a single black person to me, concert. That, that I think that just has a lot to do with the DJs and who controls how the music gets out there as it would be on the radio stations of yesteryear. Today it's on XM Radio. Yeah. And they just don't play it to certain audiences. They, But, but you know what? If they did, they probably well, would have different Well, that's the thing. Reaction. I mean, it's And it like, almost makes yeah. you think that maybe the reason they don't do it is because they like having people divided. I don't know, just a thought. Well, I don't know that I think it's that calculated, but I find oh, it very I interesting because Billy's music is very, very soul-based, jazz-based. He loves that style of music. That I mean, I'm just saying it's weird to me. It's not like it's like Perry Cuomo and like, you know, like white bread music. So, and then when I've seen black people well, why hear it, they just really say, Why didn't you just say Barry Manilow? I well, think that would have been that. a better I'm choice. Just say, well, no, but just very like white music. It's not like, that's why it's fine. It's interesting to me. You know, everything is happening for a reason. Like Fire Breathing Raw bringing up Josh Wheel and now our good buddy Sam bringing up Angel. I will tell you- We know all about Angel. in terms of strategy, and I believe there is one in Miami, there are- really good people in the movement who are not running in races where they could really have a tremendous impact. There is such a thing as punching above your weight class. There's also something to be said for honing your skills as a candidate. If that is what you are determined to become, I really believe that Angel is a fantastic activist, but I also think when it comes to being a candidate and really being able to be effective, there are, you've got to find another he way. He was on the show on Friday with Peter, Sam. Yeah. I, I mean, I speak to him. I text with him. I'm supportive of what he's doing. I, I like him. I think he's great. But, you know, he's he's running up against a blue brick wall right now, which I knew was going to come at some point when he first got in and there was nobody else in the race. You know, OK. But I, I always suspected that this was exactly what was going to happen. I didn't know who it would be, but I knew that somebody was going to jump in that and and be a brick wall. But um, I very much, well, Ken Russell, and now I'm beginning to think that that was what the plan was for him all along, which really just bothers me, but I digress. Mm, but no, I'm very much supportive of Angel and I'm supportive of Josh. I think Josh is great, but the reality is, is that it's going to be Val Demings and she is going to have the pleasure of just losing handedly. Just like our governor's race, just like everything that's happening right now, and the only people that don't seem to know that are the Florida Democrats that actually are trying to like. Get oh out no, the let's vote. just say, you know, let, let's just keep disintegrating the party. And it's, it's really happening. sad. No, they actually believe, and our state party believes that they're running a gubernatorial race this year. They they actually think that they're challenging DeSantis this year. He's not running for governor, people. That's not, he won't even spend a dollar running for governor. Like, I think it's going to be ridiculous. And he's already running for 24 for president. And the only people that don't know it are the, are the Democrats here. They have no clue. Well, if I have anything to say about it, he's totally running for the wrong seat because that's my seat, Jen. And I'm totally taking it. He's your, he's your monster, Dr. Frankenstein. I totally created him and I can totally destroy him. And believe me when I tell you, we're totally destroying him. We're going to destroy everybody else in our path. Believe me, I'm not done yet, Jen. I know I suffered some defeats, but they were totally rigged. I never lose. I only win. Remember, heads I win, tails you lose. Remember that saying? It's really great. And I totally live by it. So 
we are totally taking care of DeSantis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are totally he's extremely popular, I'm just saying. No, he's not popular. He's popular because of me. I made him popular and I can make him unpopular. And I also think that he's extremely smart strategically. I think what he's doing is smart. There's a he's reason. Not a sta- no, he's totally not a stable genius. I'm and stable I, I, genius. I think he's politically brilliant. And I'm here, and here's genius. the thing. People are talking about no. how, how he is, he's not running as, as much as some of the people like Nikki Haley, because they've all been showing up to Iowa, New Hampshire. You guys keep doing that. He's amassing a war chest of gargantuan fake proportions. Fake news. Totally fake news. He's only going there He doesn't need to afraid. go to those places. He's totally afraid of me and he's afraid of my power. Yeah. I'm totally going to take care of him. You guys me. can go hang out totally. in Iowa, New Hampshire. I am telling you right now, it's not going to matter. Oh, believe me, it's totally going to matter. I, I don't really like those Iowans. They didn't vote for me in 2016. I've always had a very rough relationship with them, but I know I need their votes. So- we're going to have to go along to get along. Yeah, whatever. I think DeSantis is like, he is really? extremely politically smart. I think he's smart in general, actually. And he's I think- He's not as smart as me, Jen. He's totally not as smart and as I, me. And I, and again, this is not me liking him. I don't like him. I don't like you, but I don't like him. No, and you I'm totally just, like me. Everybody uh, likes me because I'm really great. I'm a really great person, Jen. I thought you were a douche in the 80s. No, I was totally- Still a douche. I am not a douche. Don't Ugh. say that. You're going to be in big trouble. Remember, I have secret service. I but I, Ever. I, I can totally, totally make you disappear. But on that note, I really have to go. Good to see you. All of you guys remember, 24, we're making America great again. Again. That's what I'm talking about. By the way, you do realize that was Ronald Reagan's- Slogan. Yes. Okay. Let's, now it's let's make America great again. That was the right. Slogan. It wasn't commanding. It was welcoming. Yes. Let's um, make America what do we have? We have some interesting well, things coming well, up I, for I, Memorial I, Day. I certainly would. Uh, is uh, 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 He's a yo-yo heiress. I just know that he's a yo-yo champion, Sam. Mr. Dink, dink, dink. <laughs> I don't know who this is. Who's this? Rachel Bitkoffer is a... She's like an electoral predictor. She she's interesting. You know, right. She's definitely in the establishment, but it should be fun. For a second, I thought that said Jermaine Jackson. I was no. really excited. Jermaine Johnson. Who do we have for Memorial Day? We may have a special guest. We have uh, we will have a military panel on Memorial Day. Uh, we'll I like it happens. when our military friends come. Yes. Uh, reached out to Danny. See if he'll. Uh, I love Danny. The last time I got all dressed up and he didn't show up. Yeah, he let you down. And he's one of the, he's, there's, there's a few people that I'll get like extra, like, you know, fancy for. He's so cute. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that, Sam. That's very interesting. Sam bringing out the guns. Wow. Okay. That's really harsh. That's some, that's some fighting words, Sam. Yeah, seriously. I don't know if I believe it or if it's really true. Mm. Made millions. But I think I, I think what what it really comes down to, um, you know, what what I do think would make, uh, yeah, yeah, Anna Scamani is definitely the Sam. Are you going to be Elijah's thing on Saturday? Yeah, we'll we'll stop by there. Um, I think we should small business campus. I don't know why I feel like that, but we should. And I think we should also do. I think we should do service small business Saturday. We're going to have to start combining it all in. Fine. We could like drive around with homeless hygiene packs and I need to go get insurers. Just remember, whatever real estate leads you guys have, I can take care of the business. I don't want to go to Miami to do it, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. And so, yeah, no. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds like fun. Ooh, I want to do that. I'm going to be an, I'm coming, I'm coming up to Tampa 
on my way to North Carolina. I know it's out of the way, but I have an aunt that's there and I'd really like to see her. But so I'm going to be in Tampa, but I'd love to be pimping out drag queens. That sounds <laughs> so much fun. All right. You're always having so much fun, Sam. Yeah, Sam, you got to come and hang out in the studio sometime and we'll catch up. And uh... Sam, are you still dating the same guy from when I saw you down in Miami at Nina's thing? He oh, was you're cute. Like literally having a conversation right now with an <laughs> artist. Man. I don't know. Are we really Sorry, doing the show? Just, are we done here? Uh, no, I don't know. So, all right, we're ha- we'll have a military panel for Memorial Day. That's exciting. And then we will be in June. And then Ju- and then Jen will be remotely joining us on our podcast in the middle of June for about six weeks. We're going to be Jen Change in Asheville, but it's going to be cool. A friend of mine is going to be sort of hanging with me this summer and we're going to be working on some really cool art. I'm going to revisit my Wicked Gypsy and we're going to do some shows. So maybe I'll do like, I'll stream and do some stuff from that. That's also, and that is also where we will have, (laughs) that is also when we'll have the best opportunity to get to get on, you know, the I love you, Sam. <laughs> Sam is definitely part of the club. And so. also, um, our friend Anthony is we need to get together with very soon yes, too. I've been missing happens. on him for sure. So with that said, we appreciate you guys. <laughs> Hope you all have a great evening <laughs> and uh stay safe out there. Lord knows um, we all need it and we're desperately trying to make a difference in whatever way we can. So <laughs> Have a great night, guys. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.